Okay, we are on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. I feel like today we're playing without a net, actually, because I have no idea what we're going to talk about. Today we are joined by Brian Falchuk, and I think it's actually interesting because on Brian's website, he actually has a little audio file that says how to pronounce my name. So I was really nervous about pronouncing it, even though I thought I knew. <laughs> But maybe I didn't. Anyway, Brian is the founder and managing partner at Insurance Evolution Partners. <laughs> maybe we should have put this on video. What do you think, Brian? It, it would have been fun. Yeah, but nobody wants to look at me. Anyway, it's no. great to have you on the show. No. <laughs> Thank you. Either of us. I thought you were going to say us. I started to say no before you said me. So now I'm, now I'm a jerk. I'm a jerk who has a how to pronounce my name file on their website. How's I just that? thought that was kind of awesome. It's it's not public. It's hidden. It's only there for people who get the I didn't know that interview prep file. Yeah, I did not know that because because I I've been on so many shows and they always ask. They're like, so how do you say your name? But do, is your so name like, hard to pronounce? That. Apparently, or you know what? I don't think it is. It's that people probably think I'm precious about it, and I don't actually care. Like Falchuk, Falchuk, whatever. It's fine. You're saying it fine. Yeah, I always say as long as you don't call me bleep. Well, so I'm growing happy. up, you know, I was I was really overweight, and so like the L became a T, and so it was Fat Chuck nice. most of my childhood. So as long as you don't go there, it's fine. God, kids, what you can't shoot them. Yes. Right? I mean, anyway. Yeah, and each one joke. thought they were the one who thought of it first. So it was always <laughs> like they had this moment, this epiphany where the brilliance came out. Right, Mister Original. Yes. Thank you for that. How are you anyway? I'm doing really well, thank you. It's nice How are you to, doing? I'm always embarrassed when I talk to you on the phone because your backgrounds are always incredible. I feel like I'm not I worthy of the future of insurance background. <laughs> I'll, I'll show you what's behind them one day. It's just a, a really messy basement. <laughs> it's not as profound. I'll show you what's behind me. It's just like a blue padded wall. That's, that's case. If you got to take your aggression out, it's good to have. I think it's pretty appropriate for me. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty appropriate for me. Talk to me about Insurance Evolution Partners. Like, how did you get involved in the insurance market to begin with? Yeah. Well, so I think it seems like everyone I talk to, with very rare exception, it's um, it's like the, the accidental insurance person story. You know, it's like, oh, I was doing this, and then I, got it. I had to get a job in college, and so I ended up doing whatever, and, and right. that's how I got into insurance. So... I wanted to do management consulting and uh, coming out of college, they um, at Liberty Mutual, they had like an internal strategy consulting unit. And so nice. I applied for, for a role there and got it. And um, in the process of, you know, doing that job where I thought I was sort of like training myself to go to management consulting, right? which in a, in a way I was, I also was getting exposed to this industry. I just didn't know much about, you know, beyond what anyone might know is like, oh, it's that thing you don't want to buy that you're paying too much for that. They're not really going to be there for you when things go wrong anyway, so why are you paying? But actually, I found like there's a there's a lot of really interesting things about it. It enables so much of what we do every day, and I like fixing things. I like grabbing opportunity, and there's a ton of that. There's a lot that needs fixing, and there's a lot of opportunity if we try to go with things differently. So I actually found myself very much excited by this thing that you know, sort of fashionable to call boring and old. Yeah, so you know this, right? But I do another podcast called the Asia InsurTech Podcast. And when I started I two years ago, a lot of the conversations started with people saying to me, I don't even know why we're having this conversation. Nobody cares about mm -hmm. insurance. You know, the common thread was insurance is not sexy. 
Yeah. And as a finance guy, if I can say that, you know, I worked at Morgan Stanley, worked at Goldman Sachs, whatever. I'm not impressed. Yeah. But the mathematics, like a lot of my biggest clients were insurance companies, right? Because they run these yeah. massive investment portfolios, which nobody yeah. ever talks about. So is that not sexy? But also people don't really understand how hard it is to become an actuary. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Like, uh, was there nine exams and the pass rate is 30%. So you kind of have to be an actuary to understand what the, the end probability is that you'll actually pass all nine, but it's incredible. And it's like, you're dedicating a huge amount of your life to getting to that point. So there are very few, like, fully, I don't know, chartered or whatever the term is, like right. people who have gone through all of the exams and passed them. And it's, uh, it, it's, they're pretty brilliant. Right. I mean, so part of my goal for all the stuff that I do is to make everything that we talk about to be sexy. And there's something super sexy to me about insurance and particularly in the environment where you operate, which is the future. Yeah, because there's, there's so much going on and there's so much change and possibility. I mean, you talk to people about this all the time. That's, it, is, it is actually incredibly, incredibly cool. I almost got my wife interested in it this weekend, talking about a couple of things in, uh, in, in my books that it's like I, I thought I had her for a second and then I lost her. But <laughs> there's a ton going on that is just really interesting. And actually, like when you, when you think about... Just so you know, I lost two of my wives, not, not to death, but... To, yeah, but two insurance. No. <laughs> Do the math. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. When you think about why the industry is, yeah. like what is it there for? Um, and, you know, it's like the worst things people go through or taking the risk of those things out of the equation so they can start their business or buy their home or, you know, whatever it is. Then you start to see more purpose. And, and there's some really exciting things going on that just enable more of that, and especially as the way people work and the businesses that they start are like that has been changing for a few years and then the pandemic really accelerated that it did though didn't um, it? the rate of yeah new business creation has gone through the roof out of necessity yeah because like what you did before is gone right. either because you lost your job or that whole industry just got wiped out so people are creating and so finding a way to to take on the risk from them that's that's really interesting it's super fascinating actually i want to talk a little bit about the first book you wrote the future of insurance because it's not like an, it, it's almost like the never ending story, right? Yeah. In a way. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what the first one was about. I really want to focus on the second one because there's a second yep. volume of it. I was going to make some kind of joke, like, is there a second future? But it wasn't even funny to me. So I decided not to make it. <laughs> well, I, there, a few of my books have like a time element to their title. My first one was do a day. And some people are like, so what's the sequel like tomorrow or do it again? I don't know. So yeah, you know, the, the marketing for the second book is like the future is here again. It's like, it's the future again. The first book, The Future of Insurance, volume one is, right. uh, it follows case studies of seven legacy insurers. So, you know, companies that the youngest one is USA for people who know the, the US market, they turn 99 this summer. Um, so that's the youngest, like the newest company in there. Is that USAA is the youngest? insurance company in the United States and it's no 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 in, in my first book yeah that's what I mean but so, it's a hundred years old yeah yeah they're yeah they're 99 I think the next youngest is like 104 years old and then the you know all the way up to like 116 so these are companies that have been around for an extremely long time they were founded in totally different situations yeah um you know like the world was I mean 
think about what's happened in in the past 116 years there were no world wars yet like think about that um there were there were the the last two global pandemics hadn't happened yet right um no one had been to space let alone driven a car like things are you know we talk about auto insurance like there were no autos it's like your horse so things were um were really really different uh so maybe there were i'm trying to think 116 i think we're safe to say there were no maybe there's like some tinkerers who had built some little things but uh there's no you know the model t wasn't out yet right so i'm really curious about this but as sort of a historian as well are there things that were going on back then if you know that sort of helped shape the formation of these companies that still exist today that maybe shouldn't still be there? Does that make sense? That's a really interesting question. You know what um, I mean? I was with you until the last thing, because interestingly, in the, the second book, which we'll come to, there are things that were there in the formation of those companies at the time they were formed right. that actually, it's like, we need to remember that and bring that back into the conception of why do you exist in the first place? Yeah. Um, you know, because a lot of them came to be around the community banding together because it wasn't being served by the insurance that was there at the time or anything. Um, and so you, you see in some of these startups, it was like, we kind of lost our way uh, and we need to reconnect with why, why are we here in the first place? It's about all of us coming together, pooling our money, right. serving each other better. So it, it's almost the opposite um, where it's like, we need to remember because there's all this other stuff that got in the way, kind of bloat, right? And that stands in the way of how we stand by each other. But what is that, the mutualization? Yeah, so there's mutuals. Uh, a couple of, of the companies in the new book are reciprocals, which is what USAA is, which is almost like, I was gonna say a mutual on crack, but that's, that's the wrong way to say it. it. It's like an amplified. So a mutual is the policyholders give their money to the company, um, they own the company, and then the company protects everyone. A reciprocal is, it ends up in practice feeling very similar, but it's it's more like you're actually insuring each other rather than passing your capital in. Yeah. The reality is like the capital pools end up working very, very similarly, but there's like something in the conception of a reciprocal that's even more, uh, you know, like Michael, you and me, we're in this together. Right. And this company is just facilitating that versus like you and me handed our money to the company and now they're in it together on our behalf. Uh, it's a little more personal responsibility in the message. I had a friend of mine. Well, let's just say this. I had someone that I've known for a long time, 30, 40 years, right? I'm 55 years old. So I've known them for a really long time. And they were talking about insurance. I don't even remember why. And they said to me, why should I have to subsidize somebody else's insurance? And I wasn't yeah. really sure 100% how to answer that question because isn't that the nature of it to begin with? Or am I just completely wrong? Well, that, I mean, that is, that is the point. Um, there's different, like, uh, I live in, in the state of Massachusetts in the right. U.S., um, for a very long time, our auto market was highly regulated so that people in the inner city with higher, uh, higher risk, you know, there's more crime, there's more accidents uh, versus people in the rural areas. Uh, the, the risk was actually spread out. So people in the rural areas were being overcharged and so that the people in the cities were uh, able to afford coverage because it's better if everybody can get insurance. So the the market so you were you were subsidizing each other on a rate basis yeah. so like i'm paying more so you can pay less 
Um, Does it revert what, to the mean though? It it didn't end up doing that because okay. when they deregulated, the prices did split. More. Right. Luckily, I lived in the city when it was still regulated, and we moved out to the suburbs when deregulation hit. So I had the best of both worlds. But I can see where where it mattered a lot. But on the loss side, the notion of insurance is that no one of us can really bear the brunt of this on our own. Right. So we're going to pool our money, and I may be okay for the next 10 years and not have a loss, but you're not. And so you need my help then. But guess what? There's going to be a time where I may need to call on you for help. Right. And that's like that's the mutual or the reciprocal idea. Um, so in that sense, yes, we're subsidizing the worst moment for you know that someone goes through so they can recover, but that's that's what you're paying into so that should you face that, you go through the same thing. It's the same notion in microfinance and the Grameen Bank, the, the loans, like that's yep. what it is. You're putting your money in so that your neighbor can start a business and you might get some reward from that, you know, very little that pays into the pop, but what happens when you need to start your business and need a loan as well? Right. These sort of community funding efforts, um, they can they can really change a whole community. It's it's really powerful stuff. I think it's super powerful. I mean, look, it's I always say this. It's in the name, right? People ask me sometimes, like, what is the Asia Tech Podcast about? Yeah. And I'm like, which part of Asia and tech in podcasts don't you understand? <laughs> if it has an Asian angle part. or a tech angle, like, and it's a podcast, so yeah. Help me out here for a That's second. That's what it does in the tin. Yeah, exactly, as the English yeah. would say. But also, so like Mass Mutual is a gigantic insurance company, but it's in the name, right? I mean, it must. I don't know when Mass Mutual started, but there must have been a mutual benefit to everybody to start it. Otherwise, they, why would they call it that, no? Yeah, I mean, you know, like USAA started uh, because these military service, they were officers um, going off to war, couldn't get life insurance. Yep. And uh, because war is not, it's not gonna be a covered reason that you die. Right. Um, so they banded together and supported themselves. Um, State Farm is the largest insurer in the US. Started because this guy, George Mahurl, uh, who was an insurance agent and a farmer, didn't like that he, to your friend's point about subsidy, he was paying more than his risk would imply so that the people in the city who were getting coverage weren't overpaying so they would actually buy because the price would have been too high if they paid directly for the cost of their risk. Right. And he's like, we make up this teeny percentage of your losses, but we're paying way more than our fair share of the rates. That's not right. We're gonna start our own thing just for farmers. And, and they were, I mean, there's a number of insurers that have farmed somewhere in their name for that reason. Right. And now, you know, they all insure everybody, but um, it is really, except the farm bureaus, um, it's really interesting that that sort of notion sparked the some of the biggest players in the in the country, in the in the largest insurance market. My dad was in the Air Force, so we grew up like all of his automobiles were insured by USAA. Yeah, it's weird though when you think about it. You know, forty years later, all these little touch points that you. My grandmother worked at Aetna mm. in Boston. And if my memory serves me correctly, she was actually an actuary there, which was weird for a woman yep. of her age and of her time, right? She was a mathematical yeah. genius. Good for her. Yeah, it was pretty impressive, actually. Um, but that's a story for another time. I really want to talk about the learnings that you had from the first book, but in a way, I don't want to go there. I want to go to the second one, right? You, you, yeah. You've recently published a new book, The Future of Insurance, Volume 2. Do I have it right? Volume two, yeah, and maybe um, I didn't really say the the crux of the first book, which is the setup for the second. So let me go for it. Briefly hit hit on that, and I think yeah. you'll understand where the second comes in. So you know, I mentioned it's it's these case studies of these seven 
truly legacy insurance companies. You know, they're all century plus, you know, give, give me some leeway on USA, they're getting there. But the whole notion is a lot of us in the industry, and, and this comes from my personal perspective, I spent 20 years in the carrier side, I was a COO, a chief claims officer, like if I've been wow. in the decision-making side as well as on the front lines. And then I went to the insure tech side and uh, at a solution provider, I was doing sales. So I was going around to all these carriers talking about implementing technology to make things better. And I, I felt when I was on the carrier side and I saw when I was selling to carriers, the same issue that, oh, we want to, but we can't because insert, you know, all these very valid, but excuses of why they're stuck or why it's gonna take so long or why it's difficult or why they can't or why customers don't understand and that's what the problem is. It's not that you know they need this thing, it's that they just don't get it uh, or they need to bear with us or hey, it's insurance so we're slow. I understand all that, I've lived all that and we actually can still move forward. And right. I know that for a fact because I've been able to do that and all these companies that I talk to, we were really successful in selling into them. So if I was met with the same sort of pushback and was able to get them to adopt new technology and, and they were like giddy. I actually had a guy in tears, which is crazy. At the end of our pilot, he's this like stoic Midwestern guy. And he honestly he was welling up because like, he's like, it's all been lies from everyone we've ever talked to. Every tech solution, they're harder than they say it is to get in place and they don't have the impact. And, and he's like, and our people have lost faith in us and you blew them away today. And he's like, thank you, our customers deserve it. And I was like, this is so profound, but we're talking about like a really lightweight solution to text customers during a claim. It's not, you know, feeding the, the starving or, but it, but it had that impact. And I was like, we need to tell this story. So the case studies are all these carriers who face all the same hurdles that everyone talks about. And yet they were able to do something innovative and move ahead. And it doesn't mean that everything's super simple for them. And now like they've figured out the code and it's all easy from here, but they did it despite those barriers. What lessons can we take from that? So that if you're feeling stuck, you're like, well, maybe I can take some inspiration and do something myself. Isn't the biggest lesson the fact that it's not impossible? You know what I mean? 100%. That it can actually yeah. work. Like if you just be right. a little bit more open-minded, it can actually work, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think because I'm, I'm an industry insider, you know, looking at those barriers, there's no judgment in that. And I, like, I'm one of you, so I'm not sitting here saying like, you just need to get over it or you need to stop thinking that way or just try, you know, it, I, I've lived it too. Like, it is hard. The regulations are real. The technology gaps are like, these are all real things and yet we can still. So it, it's not a get over it. It's like, well, why don't we, why don't we try something? And one of the, the pressures is not one of the barriers for the legacy carriers, but certainly one of the pressures that they face. One is the customer expectations, which change rapidly. And this is even pre-COVID. And then you layer COVID on that and like everything has to be digital and, you know, people aren't willing to wait for anything and, and all that is just amplified. Right. But the other major pressure is you get all these startups and the startups have, um, they have more freedom then you might or you might perceive them to have more freedom to do innovative things a right. lot of them started clean sheets so you know they don't have this huge technology like you know there's no migration of existing business to a new platform they don't have all the layers you have like wh whatever the reasons are they certainly seem to be uh, freer and a lot of them are digital natives so they don't also have to think about you know like you mentioned mass mutual uh, life insurance policies can be enforced for you know whole life like 60 years 
50 right. really long times. A lot of them were, my father is one that was written in paper. The company that he bought it from, you know, years, he was younger than, than uh, I think it was before I was born and I'm in my forties. So like it goes back a ways. Right. And uh, the company he bought it from has been bought. And then the company that bought them has been bought. bought and yeah. so like they had to track down the, cause the systems, well, there weren't <laughs> any, it was all paper. They had to track the stuff down. So yeah. it's like, that's very real. Startups don't have any of that. So I said, you know, we can look at the startups as another pressure or bemoan them or think they have an unfair advantage, which maybe that's all true. But I think you're not telling the full story if you don't also look into what's happening on that side of the coin. So the second book is, you know, we looked at the legacies. Now let's look at the startups and round out that story. And what I was really curious about is do the lessons from one side apply to the other? And I'll spoil the series that yes, they absolutely do. Because, and I, I use this phrase a lot, but the grass is not green anywhere unless you garden. So to say that, you know, the startups have it so easy because clean sheet of paper and, and they're digital first and whatever is like, they have some things easy. There's a lot of things that you have that they don't have that make it harder. And, you know, vice versa is true. So the lessons uh, in both books really do apply regardless of even if you're an insurance company, like they apply in other businesses too, but I'm, you know, obviously I'm focused on insurers. They're quite universal, which yeah. is great because it means there's more possibility for us. Like anyone can do this stuff. How did you pick the startups that you wanted to talk to? I mean, so, so I want to back up actually before you answer that. Yeah, yeah. Just to make this point, the idea that one side informs the other side and that they're addressing the same issues or that they have the same issues to me is not like a big epiphany. It, to no, me, but you'd be surprised it is no, no, no. so many people. Again, yeah. so many people don't get it. It's you like the it. guy that gets married yeah. 15 times and goes, is it me? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't understand yeah. what's... Because it's the same thing. It's like you have to be a little bit self-aware to understand what the problems are. And just because yeah. you're on the on the fintech or on the insurtech side doesn't mean you have all the solutions and you're going to have run into some of the same problems. You said this kind of in passing earlier, but the best clients for an insurtech company is a, an incumbent insurance company. And if you run around saying, we're gonna destroy you or we're gonna disrupt you, you're not gonna do any of that because you're not gonna have any clients. Right. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Anyway. The industry, um, in a partnership and working strategically together is Correct. a really critical theme in the second book. I think so, go ahead. Um, and so when I hear this whole like, who's gonna win? Is it gonna be, are the startups gonna put all the, you know, the, uh, the incumbents out of business and, um, it's that's not what it's about no. and and why does it need to be winner take all because it's not that way at all in insurance no um, so I think partnership collaboration openness like that's actually that's it's you know people are like well, what's the tech I need to implement I'm like that's irrelevant it's nothing to do with like which cloud service like do, you, do we do Azure or we need to go AWS I'm like that doesn't make any difference like you need to pick whichever one fits what you're trying to achieve or whatever right that's not the answer. The answer is what's your mindset around it? Because you can have all the best tech in the world, but if you're not implementing it right with the right attitude doesn't towards matter. it and partnering, that's worthless. Yeah, it just doesn't matter. So how did you pick the startups that you wanted to focus on? Well, it was, you know, it was nice having the first book out because it gave me some clout when I reached out that people were like, oh yeah, your, you know, your first book was great. We'd love to be in the book. So there were a few, a few prerequisites that I had there, there are still a number of startups that are sort of like, oh, insurance companies are dumb, uh, they're all broken, and we're gonna upend the whole industry. Right. I'm not interested in that story. 
Um, especially because actually if you peel back the layers, there's no material reason why that insurer gets to exist. Like there's no advantaged position. It's really just marketing and hubris and, uh, and often low prices. But uh, if you look at their finances, it would say that economically speaking, uh, those are unsustainably low prices. Right. So being cheap and cheeky is not enough. It's not good enough. So I wasn't interested in any of those insurers, even though, you know, there's no question uh, the book marketers out there might be like, well, that was stupid of you. You'd sell way more copies if you had, you know, company X in there. But I don't think there's lessons in it. Right. You know, I, I talked to one carrier, uh, there's a VC I'm close to who invested in this carrier and their CEO was just unbelievably pompous and egotistical about how terribly broken insurance is and he's the only one who gets it and he is going to completely change the entire industry. Right. And so for me, it's like, well, what's if you're the reader, what's the lesson? Hire this guy, right. that's the only takeaway. Right. So that was out. So, and you know, because I'm in this space, I'm familiar with, with a number of these companies. So I had, I had a sense of which ones to go to. Right, right. Um, and then it was networking. You know, people are like, oh, did you know about like Kin is a homeowner's insurer that I, I'd heard of, but I didn't really know much about. And I had a, I'm in an insure tech runners group and one of the other runners uh, knew them pretty well. And so he's like, let me hook you up with those guys and, you know, talk to them and see if it's of interest. And actually there's a ton in that, like they almost went out of business. I think that's really rich. Like those are the stories we need to hear is they're very successful, but that wasn't always the case. And yeah. they, you know, they had, they had some things that you can call them missteps you can call them like learning, learning moments, whatever you want to call them. But if we don't talk about that stuff and the book is all firsthand research, it's not just summing up press releases or other things that are out there. If you're not willing to sit down with me and talk honestly, about what happened, the yeah. ups and the downs, yeah. um, then you're not a fit for the book. And they were awesome about it, you know, really open. And like, that's a tough moment. Um, you know, people lost their jobs and that's really difficult, but they, they talked about it pretty honestly about why and, and what that meant and uh, how it made them feel. And that's really rich for teaching. I could not agree with you more. Can you share like a couple of the stories? Maybe pick one yeah. of the startups or two of the startups and just talk about some of the conversations that you had and some of the stuff that you learned. I don't want to give away the whole book. I want people to go read it, obviously, so they can learn more. But maybe just a couple of things. I'm, I'm happy to. And I would say, like, I actually do share pretty openly the, the main takeaways from the book because I think, like, that's where the value is for the industry and I want that getting around. And then I think if that sparks something for you, you'll want to read the book because the stories are, are actually just really, like, I loved writing this. Yeah. It was fascinating. Um, I just, I get into the stories. I think they're really cool. So there's, there were a few, one of the, the major lessons is about treating your capital strategically. And that has a, a number of, of like sub bullets under it. Capital means two things here. When we're talking about startups, people are like, oh, venture capital. Yes, it does mean that. And it also means capacity, which is really important in insurance is you can't write without capacity behind you to take on those losses. And that could be your own. Yeah. I want, so I wanted to, I know what it means, but I wanted to find this word capacity because I think I, I'm not sure if I said this to you online or offline tonight, but when I first started doing the InsureTech podcast a couple of years ago, if someone had said capacity to me or parametric or anything, I would have no right. idea what, what they were that? talking about. Yeah. And you said, right. But I think you're actually talking what about right underwriting. Mean? What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. Maybe just a little bit about what capacity yeah. means because it's important. Yeah. 
So when you're an insurance company, you need uh, you need capital behind you. You need cash sitting behind the promise that you make on all those policies that if something goes wrong, you're going to pay. Right. And there's a few ways that you achieve that. You have your own, you know, uh, statutory capital. So like what the regulators say you must have given how much uh, business you're writing. Yep. So you have to have a pot of money yourself. And there's a couple ways that that gets made up. And then you also need, generally, we have an insurance thing called reinsurance. So insurers buy insurance right. on the insurance they sell, if you can follow that. Yep. Um, and that those are actually the largest insurers in the world, really, are the reinsurers, because yeah. they stand behind the whole industry. Swiss Re, Hanover so Re. Swiss Re, Munich Re, Hanover Re, Re. Yeah. yep. And then there's, there's smaller ones, and there's niche players, and a lot of insurers uh, end up insuring each other. Like most of the major insurers have reinsurance units. Sure. Um, cause the, the risk has to be spread out cause it's just, it's so big and complex and syndicated. Yeah. Right. Um, and then there's, there's other things beyond that. There's something called a fronting carrier that I get into more specifically in the book that we'll leave for now, but that depends on what your structure is, whether you need one of them or not. Go ahead. Um, but to have investors really stand behind you when things are tough, like I mentioned for kin, when, you know, their business potentially was going to get shut down, right. uh, or for others, Branch Insurance is another one in there who, at the the last minute, the two co-founders had really good jobs. I mean, like C-suite roles. One of them had started; he was on a second tech company that he sold, and so he was at the acquiring company, uh, you know, pretty senior. The other one was the president of the whole North American personal lines business for a major uh, player in the insurance space, a company called Verisk. That anyone in the industry like will know. know who that yeah. is. Um, so these are, you know, these guys were flying high in their thirties, like really successful. They both quit their jobs, gave their notice, had their last days at work. And that afternoon, which is like the day before their funding round was, was going to close one of their investors, not their lead investor, but one of the investors pulled out. And so everything fell apart. So it's like, they can't just keep working at their day jobs. So, you know, supporting the families is now in question and the way that they had built their relationship with the lead investor, right. the way they had been open and honest and really got him bought into their strategy and their vision so that he was more than just money. Uh, that's the only reason they survived. They called him to tell him the news and he was not mad at them. He was mad at the investor who pulled out Sure, because he obviously talked to them and knew what their pro and he was very caught off guard. So he didn't like that, but he said, don't worry, we'll get this closed. We're going to move the date. Let's start talking to others again. Right. And like to have someone because his dad, he was a really well-known investor. He could have easily just said, guys, I have 20 other deals I can fund. Yeah. I'm so sorry. Best of luck. But I can get this one closed tomorrow. And I have to because my fund needs to close off. And these like they all have all their pressures and interests. Yeah, yeah. He could have easily split. And he set all of that aside to stand by them. And that kind of story repeats itself several times over. Um, for another one, it was the fronting carrier pulled out. And again, we'll leave that. But it's another... It, it's something else you need, depending on your structure, to be able to write business. It was really hard to get one. They pulled out at the last minute. And again, their investor, they went back to their investor. This is um, clear cover. They went back to, to one of their main investors and said, look, this is what happened. This took us months to get this, this one lined up. They pulled out. Everyone else we talked to said no. So we're not sure what's going to happen. Right. And, uh, and they were really honest about it. And their investor was like, guys, you know, I have faith in you. I believe in you, we're gonna get this done. And and he talked to them off a ledge in a sense and continued to stand by them. They still closed the round, they still got the funding, which they were like, we're gonna lose our money. 
we're going to have to lay everyone off. Like this is going to be the end, but their investors stood by them because they were strategically aligned. That theme keeps coming up. And there's others where maybe they weren't as open or honest in the kin example that I mentioned. That's why they, they had to lay people off. They weren't as open and upfront with their fronting carrier in this case, who they did something that surprised the fronting carrier that they thought was obvious and they didn't need to tell them explicitly they were doing, the fronting carrier felt otherwise. Right. And in a single day, shut off all their capacity so they couldn't write any more business. So their, their revenue was shut off. And not only that, all of the business they had taken on, the fronting carrier took. So they took all those policies and started to put them into their own company. So no new business, all of the existing business is threatened. And it's still going to be about a year before they can get everything else they need up and running. So this is a very strong life or death moment for them. Yeah. Uh, and that's why about, you know, 40 ish percent of their staff got laid off. It was really contentious and they had to eventually get the fronting carrier to agree to sit down and they worked through a transition process and uh, averted collapse. But that was because they weren't being uh, strategically aligned, upfront, open, honest. And, and it, it cuts both ways. So that's two, you know, that relationship's a two way street. It's not all on them, but um, you know, they said like, we, we just figured they knew this. And that kept coming up as we just figured they knew whatever. We thought it was blatantly obvious. Like, well, it wasn't right. cause they're not you. Right. So how are you, you have to be open and honest with your partners. And if you can't be, maybe they shouldn't be your partner. Cause in effect, they're not, they're right, just they're not. Yeah. And that's not going to work. And, and that, so that's one that people are surprised applies to the legacy side. But I mentioned, you know, every insurer buys reinsurance, right? That's capacity, that's capital. Yep. So if you're not, I mean, I went through this when I was running claims, you have to tell your reinsurer about major claims that are brewing that may end up costing them money, even if you don't think they will. And, and there's this um, subconscious pressure not to do that. Because the more you tell them that, the more likely they are when your contracts up for renewal, they may say, Oh, we have to raise your rates because because of all these losses. So you have this kind of automatic disincentive to be aligned. But if you're not honest with them, they're gonna find out anyway, because eventually some of those losses will come through. And then they're not only gonna wanna charge you more because there's more losses, they'll also wanna charge you more because they don't trust you. Right. Or they may just say like, we're not gonna back you. And then guess what happens? You can't write your business. Right. So even a legacy player can get shut down or materially impacted by not being strategically aligned with their capital. And how many startups did you talk to in the book? For the, sec for the second book? There are eight that made the final cut. There was a ninth that was there until press time that had to come out for some other reasons. Um, great story, it just, the timing of it couldn't, it wasn't right for them. But I, I think I talked to 14 or 15 in total. Right, and do you feel like that there were, regardless of whether they're in the book or not in the book, that you yeah. just kept hearing the same stories over and over again? So you like picked, you know, for startup one, we'll talk about this thing, for startup two, we'll talk about that thing. And for startup three, we'll talk yeah. about a different topic, but that there were common threads throughout all of them. And is there one of those threads, things, yeah. say it again, is one of them like just the struggle of actually building something? You know, you mentioned these two guys that had really good jobs, they were making a ton of money or whatever it was, and they were still pretty young. Yeah. They quit their jobs. You know, obviously everybody forgets that there's an entrepreneur. Look, my grandfather once said to me, when you get married, you don't ever, you don't marry one person. And I'm like, really? He's like, no, you marry the whole family. So yeah. if there's never just an entrepreneur, never, and you don't know what their commitments are, so there's this whole network of people that are related to them, 
So if it fails, there's not just pressure on them to feed themselves necessarily. There's all, there are all these other pressures as well. Did you find that that was a common theme too among all the startups that you spoke to, regardless of whether they had already been successful at something else? Yeah. Because remember, they have employees too, yeah? Yeah. Yes, at just different stages. So some of them, you know, I, I got the stage from like before there was even a thing to, to find employees for. Um, so different stages of that, but there was always some form of, if not um, the added pressure of now there's all these people dependent on us and right. their families and their careers. But a lot of them, you, and you find this, there's a genuine reason, and I, I mentioned this before, there's a genuine reason why they need to exist. And there's a material advantage that they're creating so that they can exist and continue to exist. And thrive, yeah. Right, and, and that's purpose, right? Like the reason why they're there is not like, oh, there's lots of money to be made there, we should do that. That's never the case for any of them. It's always like, hang on, this is a real problem. Right. People, like there is a genuine need here and no one's solving it. Like I mentioned Branch, the, uh, the founder of Branch as I'm doing the interview, or one of the, the one of the co-founders, he's telling me, he's like, I'm a really good sleeper. I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, where is this going? <laughs> yeah. And he starts telling me, he's like, once I had the idea, I started waking up in the middle of the night, completely unable to sleep. And so I started writing pro formas and business plans. I'm like, well, okay, that's kind of weird. Uh, I don't know, people are like 3 a.m., let me start doing pro formas. But his point was like, once he, once the vision was there, right. it got to a point where it's, you can't imagine not doing it. And that, is very consuming and very driving. And so when you come to these roadblocks, yes, you know, our employees and all that, but it's also like, this needs to exist. This is the right thing to do. How yeah. could I not do this? Yeah, we talk about this a lot in the startup world. And to be fair, I had a conversation, a recorded conversation with someone this afternoon, and he, you know, he said to me, he said, people that start companies just to make money have a lower chance of succeeding because it may mean totally. that they're just trying to take like a really quick opportunity at something but then maybe it doesn't have the purpose or the necessity to exist, which is what you're saying, right? In other words, yeah. it, it has to be there yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I worked with uh, the safety technology startup that genuinely, uh, it's, they're still around, genuinely saves lives in a space that no one was trying to do anything. Like the last patent around safety tech was from the 1960s. And this is 2014 when they started, right. um, which made the patenting process for their, their technology actually really easy because it's like, prior art, like none of the technology even existed last time this stuff was done. And people genuinely worldwide are dying every day because of this stuff or getting very materially injured. I said, I said to a few VCs, and maybe this is the wrong thing to say to a venture capitalist, but I was like, look, whether we make it or not, this has to succeed. Right. And, and I guess it was like, that probably isn't what they, they were like, no, no, we need you to make it. But it's like, once you see that purpose and you know what it's capable of, and the fact that it doesn't exist in the market becomes just like, ethically wrong yeah um and that there's there's a bit of that and for the best founders out there and the most successful companies it is really this greater purpose to seeing like once we see this how does this not exist yeah look i think it's really important i really do because i think it's really important for these stories to get told at scale yeah i really do yeah. because there's there's a whole bunch of myth making and myth talking around what's happening in the startup space in general, but also in the insure tech space in particular. And yeah. this whole idea of disruption and we're gonna destroy the incumbents, it can be in any industry, right? And I think the yeah. real stories and the real struggles and just the real challenges need to get told, those stories need to get told. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's what I try to do every day yeah. so that people can understand and learn. Like you said, well, there were, you know, 
why would I want the guy in who just was like, I'm the only person who can do, there was not much to learn there then. Right. Thanks right. for your hubris and your time, basically. Right. And right. I'm sorry I'm not you, because apparently, like, I'm just part of the problem, as is, right. you know, 7 billion others in the world. Um, I'm sorry I'm in your yeah, way. Right, right. Yeah. It is, like, you just said that this this sort of notion, like, this isn't specific to insurance. It's really interesting if you look across different industries where, like, where did the incumbents get knocked in their butts and go away, and where didn't they? And, um, you know, there's a classic example like Motorola and Nokia where, you know, Nokia... Um, really destroyed Motorola's analog business. But then Nokia had it, the same thing done to them. And Motorola could see it coming because they had the patents on the digital. So Nokia was paying them. So like they knew exactly what the units were. And um, But then the same thing happened in the operating system world to Nokia with mobile phones. Right. Uh, and they're they're nothing today. Um, you know, if, uh, they're still a company, but it's not, it's not what it was. It's very different. BlackBerry is another example. But then you look at the auto industry, where you know tesla was was that and they've been really successful in a lot of ways and they're worth more than i think the next six car companies combined something like that i'm not counting out most of the incumbents and they've they've been woken up you see a lot of pretty major plans coming out now and, and shifts going on around electrification and product strategy but it, it's just it's interesting to me is like why in some industries do you see that where like, you know, Motorola has been bought and stole a couple of times over. Now it's a part of Lenovo after Google couldn't make a go of it. Right. Uh, Kodak is nothing anymore. I think they've been resurrected somehow, but like, it's a chemical, you know, company. why in tech? But, yeah. What's that? It's a chemical company, isn't it? I mean, it was always a chemical company, yeah. but anyway, yeah, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Yeah. No, but it's, I mean, it, it's just interesting. Like why I, someone asked me like, uh, you know, what companies from 1999.coms are still around today and which one of the su successful major players existed then. And the reality is very few, if any, Amazon's kind of the only one that comes to mind that was around then that's still around now. Right. But my, my response after pausing for a minute was like, well, let me go to Alta Vista and look it up. Yeah, exactly. Cause that was the search engine I'll I used back Jeeves, then. I'll just ask give me a moment. Well, and people were like passionate. It was like the search engine wars of like, which one do you use? And that's the better one. But you wouldn't even think twice about it. I guess there's some people who like use Bing or Brave or whatever. But um, it's really interesting how different it is in different industries. Um, so insurance and insurtech, it's I'm fascinated by it. I don't know how it's all going to play out. I do think the incumbents will still be around. Um, but I think it's a collaboration story more than a um no one you know 10 years from now no one knows who axa is and alliance and you know like whatever other me aviva whoever else there's a part of me that's relatively convinced that some of these massive insurance companies the incumbents but in particular the reinsurance companies right we talked about them earlier swiss re hanover re yeah. munich re they're not going away no they're just not going away Munich and Swiss especially have been really, really engaged in the startup world. Uh, and they put a ton of money up for, you know, a lot of these insure tech carriers or insurers that are losing a ton of money, they're doing that on the back of Swiss and Munich. They're paying all the claims, not, not that insurer, that insure tech startup. They're burning through a lot of capacity for the industry. But those two players are, are really invested in the space. Very much so. Look, we could spend an entire week actually talking about sing life and aviva and all the things that were happening there but it's interesting that you've written kind of both sides of this book yeah right you did the seven did i get it right case studies then you did the eight case studies on the startups yep what happens next 
that's what I'm trying to figure out. Although not, not actively right now, I'm trying to recover a little bit, but, um, this is what people keep asking me. Like every, it's like, well, what, what's the third book going to be? Because it, to me, it's like, there's other, there's other pieces of the industry to talk about. And I think, I don't think you were asking me like, what's the next book? You're asking me like, what's no. happened in the industry next, yeah, right? Cause, because, and I think you, that's you looked at both things, right? Here's the thing that happens to me. I've done a hundred and something recordings. I've spoken to everybody in the insurance tech and the insurance industry yeah. in Asia, right? So people always ask me like, what, what's coming? What's yeah. going to happen? Who's going to survive? Is there going to be consulted? Like all these market kind of related questions. You've had so many conversations about this. You also do your own podcast about this where yep. you're still yep. actively talking to all of these sort of thought leaders and startups and insurance companies in the space. What do you think is coming? So that's the hardest part of both of the books to write about. I think I was a little, a little clearer in this one with what's coming, but I, I think it's, um, and, and that's what I want to see it play out and then I'll decide what the next book is about. Cause I want to dig into this more, Yeah, yeah. but I think it is more around the collaboration and partnership side than it is about someone coming to upend everything. Yeah. Um, but there's really like there's pockets where this is happening and that's, that's where I don't know quite book wise where it is, but is it, is it a distribution story, which could be about the brokers? Is it a distribution story like what you see in India with like, you know, Amazon and Echo getting together, right. um, which is actually, you know, having been at a carrier, we we're always like Amazon's coming for us. You know, they've got more money than God and they've got better distribution. And like, once they decide to start up an insurance company, we're done. Uh, and that's like the industry. And I don't, I don't totally agree with that. I think that's I agree overly that actually, but yeah. pessimistic, but yeah. I don't think that's what they're going to do. I think they distribute. They do it better than anybody. I think that's their story and that's what they did in India and that's what they're building in the US with a number of partnerships. So I think there's a, a really strong distribution partnership story. And I think like, you know, Teresa Blessing and I were talking about, she's bringing up what Grab is doing with like different micro insurance in Asia, um, which I know is like for the Asian market, that that's not news. That's all been around for a while. But that sort of notion is like, will that permeate more? Um, and looking at different ways where micro insurance sold in an embedded fashion, um, maybe even like invisibly. Uh, so you're not even aware of it. It's just baked into it. Contextual. I think yeah. that's, that's, yeah, like that's, that's an interesting thing. I don't know what that will look like, what sort of scale it will achieve. But I think that's like, there's so much that we do where there isn't, there isn't proper protection. And I'm only thinking this because uh, UPS lost a shipment of my books that I sent to a, a customer and they, they never said a word. So it's been two weeks and the customer's like, where are my books? Um, that's the only reason I found out that they were lost. Right. I don't know how a shipping company that that's all they do. Can't get it right. But um, yeah, I, the guy was like, well, did you declare the value of them? And I did, but it was also like, why is that even a question? Yeah. Why is that a thing? And why does that, why should that change the price of shipping? Because that's you failing at your job. So why is that my problem? And obviously like they self insure that. So they're using their own capital to pay for those losses. Right. Again, why is that my problem? That should just be part of, you know, it's a, a Caribou Honig who, who started ITC. Like he was saying, you think of like your car warranty, you can't go to the dealer and say like, I'm gonna pay you a thousand less 
to, I'm going to sign a piece of paper that says I'll never make a warranty claim. Like that's not an option. No. You can't go to your doctor and say like, I know you charge $200 for this visit, but can I pay 150 if I promise to never sue you for anything you do? Right. Like you, the, the medical malpractice insurance is baked into that office visit right. cost. Right. Why, why am I having this discussion with UPS when they failed? So I think there's, there's things like that, that I think it could just smooth out the way the economies work. And then you don't have parties that really aren't like me having to pay for those books and replacing them hurts more than it hurts UPS to just deliver the package right or pay when they don't. Well, also so because they've already having, insured it, right? Right. So they've, they've built that economic model and set the cash aside and they're investing it in all the things that like an insurance company would do. Right. So, and you see that like, you know, a, a small time merchant who suffers a loss because the, the marketplace where they're selling did something wrong. Like, why are they the ones who are bearing the brunt of that, which is proportionately much more impactful to them than the marketplace making it right. Yeah, so at a smaller scale, this reminds me of what happened last week with Fastly, right? Fastly is a CDN that provides internet connectivity services and caching services mm. to some of the biggest mm -hmm. online marketplaces in the world. Yeah. Definitely the biggest online marketplaces in the United States. And this is where parametric insurance comes into play, right? In other words, I don't need you to tell me that my internet connectivity was down because it's demonstrably so. Yeah. And it's the same thing with your books. Like there should be just some parametric insurance that gets written on this. I gave you books, you know, I gave them to you, you took the receipt, it's there, right? And yeah. we can go all the way to like an Ethereum smart contract if we want to, but we don't have to, but we could. And yeah. then say, you promised me that my books would get delivered to company X in Chicago, wherever it was yeah, on Thursday, the 12th, whatever it was, it's not there. It just didn't happen. And I'm not telling you you have to pay, because it, if it's parametric, it's pre-agreed. Whatever the payout is, is just automatic right. and it's pre-agreed. It doesn't have to be the full value necessarily, but I don't even want to talk about it. Yeah. It didn't right. make it. It just happens. It happens. Right. Thank you for your help. Yeah. Yeah. And that you want to get really future. cool with it, then like, what if, what if the whole supply chain was tied to, like when you mentioned smart contracts. Yep. What if it's not just like reimburse Brian and then I have to figure out I'm sold out of copies. So I actually can't replace their order for like 10 days. I feel terrible about it because it's already been 20 days. So like, what if that, if, if I could connect Amazon, uh, into that. And so like if UPS failed to deliver, which they've known for two weeks and didn't tell anyone or anything right. that triggered a re reprint from Amazon to go out automatically. And so it's like, I'm aware of it. But I don't, I don't need money. No. I need that, you know, like I need the supply chain to work. And so it, it actually, you know, is insurance the mechanism for that? Is insurance through smart contracts? There's like, and that's where I say like, I don't know what it is yet, but I think there's some really interesting possibilities that if you go back to why do we exist? To, you know, put things together when they go wrong or to take the risk of that out of the equation. I, it wouldn't have occurred to me that I needed to worry about this, but now it will. Right. So. And let's what, go back. Yeah, what could I lean on? Right. And let's go automatically. Back. Let's go back 150 yeah. years. I want to let you go in a second because we've been at this for a while. But let's go back 150, 1871, right? Yeah. And just say, if I gave a guy riding a horse, let's go back even further, like 8 to 1850. If I gave a guy riding a horse a package that needed to get delivered to somewhere in the Midwest, which was the West at the time, yep. 
and it didn't get delivered, there was no technological way to know that that happened. So yep. the time frame around it could have been infinite, or at least it could feel infinite. But today yeah. we know it, it's measurable, it's um, trackable, usually. and it's instantaneous. Yeah, and it's verifiable, which is really critical for parametric. It's not Correct. he said, she said. No, 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 yeah. no. As a matter of fact, it's third-party verifiable. Right. It's not like, right. oh, I think my internet went down. It's just, right. it went down. And everybody yep. knows, and there's a way to verify it went down. And it went down for three hours and 17 minutes at this time, from this time to that time. Where's my, and, and you don't even have to ask. There's no claim, right? Yeah. It's just a pre-agreed upon payment. Anyway. Yeah. But technology enables that. Yeah. So I wonder, and I had a conversation. Again, I'll let you go in a second, but I had a conversation with a guy who was, and I said to him, is the, is the future just going to be everything's parametric? It's measured, it's demonstrable, and it's paid. And he was like, yeah. well, maybe it's a para-indemnity. I don't know. So there, there's a, a need to discuss what all these words mean, but what I will say in, in a shorter form version of it is um, he may be right because there's a huge regulatory change needed there because a lot of regulators view parametric as betting or gambling because um, you don't have to prove that you had a loss and i think that that that's a mentality issue like if, if my internet is down for this many minutes or hours yep. that is the loss and we've agreed on what the economic value of that right. is so it's um it's just not a, a loss verification in the traditional sense but a lot of things aren't in the traditional sense anymore so i think there's a need to move to being able to uh, to to look at it a little bit differently from a regulator standpoint. Right. And not everything can be adjusted that way yet. Not yet, but I but think. But I think as things can be, and yeah. more and more will be. I, I agree. So I think I think it's a mix. There's parametric and indemnity, and I think it, the the uh, the line is is graying and shifting. Yeah, I agree with you, and, and Could I. Be. The, the image that I have in my head says that we're at the top of the funnel right now for what the use cases are for parametric insurance. And because it's a funnel, it thins out as you get closer and closer to the bottom. We won't yep. know what it looks like. This is why when I asked you before, what do you see coming? It's not like your next book, which I am interested in, but that wasn't the real question. It's we have all this stuff taking place in the insurtech market right now. Yeah. What's going to drop to the bottom of the funnel? What are we going to end up with? And I think the real answer is, I don't know. <laughs> but something's going to drop to the bottom. And I think part of that is going to be parametric and probably in some yeah. kind of combination with indemnity. Because you may not know, like you said, what is the impact? What is the loss? Yeah. So maybe at the beginning you get your first 25 bucks. And then you're like, wait a second. Everything's gone. Yeah. So maybe there's a future claim that you can make as well. And I think that right. was his idea of para indemnity. I think um, I I don't know is right, and yeah. I think I have a sense of where we're likely to see the next things coming. And right. I think small commercial is one of the main spaces where something, and it may be a, a sub piece of a sub component of a class of business where it happens, like this particular kind of contractor or employment or whatever. That's where there's a lot of innovation going on, and um, that's where I think society is changing the fastest is how people make their living. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, the, and and insurance must catch up with that, or we're gonna have a problem. We're gonna have a number of problems. So I, to me, that's a really interesting space to see 
what's happening. And that creates, because so much work is moving or is going on digitally, that creates even more of an ability for parametric, automatic, switching on and off of cover. You know, you don't just buy a policy for a year if your job is a couple hours here and there. Right. Um, so there's a number, and like, why am I switching it on and off? Why doesn't this just know? Because I'm working through this digital platform that knows when I'm working or not. Right, when I uh, log all in these, or log out you know, or whatever, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Delta, if, if your bag's not delivered, and I don't know if this is still the case because I haven't flown in 18 months. Um, if your bag's not delivered to the, the conveyor belt within 20 minutes, um, you tap this button and you get 5,000 miles or 10, whatever it is. Brilliant idea. I was super skeptical when it first happened. I'm taking pictures of like all the clocks I can find to prove and like when it shows that we landed. I go to the website expecting I have to, you know, upload all this data and nothing, like they're never going to give me anything. I hit one button and the, the miles just came through to my account instantly, which blew my mind. It was amazing. But I was also like, why did I have to do that? Because you determine when we landed and when the bags came out and it's all tracked. So why am I even telling you that? Just like UPS, why am I having to tell them they lost my package when their online thing says they lost it two weeks ago? They already knew that. Yeah, they knew. Why do I need to file a claim? Right. It should, that's something that's like, I was blown away until I was like, wait, why did I have to press a button? There's no value in that except to keep them from paying out. Exactly. Create a hurdle so, so fewer people are likely to claim. Like that's not the way it should be. No, it's not. Okay, look, I will let we'll you go now. We'll see changes. Yeah. I will definitely let Bye. you go now. No, don't leave, don't leave that fast. <laughs> it was great to have you on the show. Where can people get your book, by the way? Yeah, so it's uh, sold exclusively through Amazon. So whatever local Amazon market in whatever format you want it, uh, Kindle, Audible, paperback, and hardcover, it's available. And it's in Kindle Unlimited. People have a subscription there. I don't know if that's in every market or what, but that means you can get it for free. Who did the reading? Did you read it yourself? I read almost all of it. The foreword is written by a guy named Dan Reed, who runs American Families uh, Venture Capital Arm. So I had him read the the foreword, which is what I had with the last book. Caribou Honig did the foreword, so I had him record it. Ah, neat. Um, and then I read the rest of it. I figure people should speak in their own voice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. If you can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for people that have great voices. Anyway, it was great to have you on the show. It's good to come back on. Or first time for this show. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to do more. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you very much, Michael. It's my pleasure. This was awesome. Thank you, Brian.